1: Hello and welcome to Demand Gen Visionaries. This episode features an interview with Christelle Flau, Vice President of Marketing at Fortress IQ, a pioneer in the burgeoning field of process intelligence. Christelle is a seasoned professional, drawing on two decades of experience in marketing, including senior leadership roles at some of the tech industry's most recognized and fastest-growing B two B companies. Prior to joining Fortress IQ, she served as CMO of Planful, formerly known as Host Analytics. On this episode, Christelle lays out her approach to category creation and why content and analyst relations play key roles in marketing an emerging category. She also discusses why the CMO's job is to be a listener, the content value of podcasting, and how to do ABM with food trucks. But before we get into it, here's a brief word from our sponsor.
2: Today's episode is brought to you by our friends at Qualified.com. If you are a B2B marketer who has always dreamed of knowing when a qualified prospect is on your site... And being able to talk to them instantly. Now you can. Learn more at qualified.com.
1: And now please enjoy this interview between Christelle Flau, Vice President of Marketing at Fortress IQ, and your host, Ian Faison. Welcome to Demand Gen Visionaries. I'm Ian
0: Faison, CEO of Caspian Studios. And today we are joined by a very special guest. Christelle, how are you doing?
2: I'm doing good. Thanks for having me on.
0: Thank you so much for joining. I'm really interested in diving into Fortress IQ and all of the marketing stuff you're doing there. But first, how did you get started in demand I
2: actually started my tech career in field marketing almost 20 years ago at Ariba, you know, like back in the days when Salesforce was first being installed and, you know, the only marketing tech out there was exact target and Omniture. And so it was before this revenue-oriented style uh, of marketing. And my background is actually very math-driven. I'm more on the science side of marketing than, than on the art side. And so anything that I could measure and put revenue to got me really excited. So I started really at Ariba when I got to take on demand generation and learning about all these new technologies and Eloqua, and Marketo, and and how those all worked, and and how they were supposed to make marketing's life easier. And so I really started on the demand gen journey just by learning the tech that was out there. And then from there, kind of combined everything I knew about field marketing into everything that I needed to learn about inbound, and how you actually make that happen. So it was there that I started. And Built up a team for demand gen as well as an inside sales team, SDRs. And then from there, just kind of grew to doing it globally and even got to work at Marketo to learn from the best of the best on how to actually do it. And then, you know, kind of grew from there.
0: You have the dyed-in-the-wool demand gen turned CMO background that we... One of the reasons why we wanted to create this show in the first place was just so many... Demand gen marketers are becoming CMOs or, or became CMOs because they understood the numbers so well. They understood pipeline and sales so well. So tell us a little bit about your role at Fortress IQ.
2: So I started about nine months ago. So actually started this job in the middle of the pandemic. <laughs> I still haven't met anyone from the company in person. Did all my interviews on Zoom. It's crazy. And as a member of the executive team, And how important culture is and how you work with one another, being able to join a company and feel confident that, you know, I was going to fit in, right? There wouldn't be any sort of organ rejection. The interview process was a little bit more laborious than normal. Just the amount of Zoom meetings I had to have, I had to present a 30, 60, 90 day plan to the executive team and had live feedback and figuring out how we would work together. So that was something I'd never done pre joining a job and my last interview was a happy hour with the CEO over zoom <laughs> so it's been pretty interesting and i've got to say like it's a small startup we're in this unique space that's pretty hot right now around rpa and automation and the team is relatively small but i'm doing everything from demand generation to analyst relations to pr to marketing operations product marketing, field marketing, partner marketing, kind of all rolled up into one. And I've got about four people on the team. But the primary objective for me right now, and this is the first job I've taken where demand gen isn't the number one priority. It really is about creating a category and getting people to understand what it is we do, how do we stand out from the crowd, and all of that obviously leads to demand, but the first step really has been, the first six months really has been about creating the category.
0: And we're going to dive super deep into that after a quick break from, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, there's, there's no <laughs> quick break. Um, I should have. Let's get to our first segment, The Trust Tree. With the knowledge you've been given, you
1: are now on the inside of what I like to call the circle of trust. What, I thought we were in the trust tree with, in the nest, are we not?
0: The trust tree is a place where we can go and feel honest and trusted, and you can share those deepest, darkest demand gen secrets. So I guess before we get to demand gen strategy, uh, because we're not quite there yet, how do you think about creating a category?
2: I never set out to go find some place to go do that, right? And a lot of CMOs now are talking about category creation, and it's not the chief marketing officer anymore. It should be the chief market officer. And I didn't grow up in product marketing or analyst relations, right? I grew up in demand gen. My definition of of a category or, you know, product marketing is like, what does somebody actually type into Google to find you, right? Like that at its simplest form, how does the market define you by a Google search? So when I started at Fortress IQ, there was a lot of learning for me because it's AI, it's computer vision, it's super techie. And I had to kind of understand the space because I'd never been in it. And the one thing that I found is that we were not in the right category. We're not RPA. And so the first thing I did was talk to a bunch of our customers and ask, you know, like, what is it that we do that's so different? And how is it helping you? And how would you define it? Right. Because we sell to heads of operational excellence, centers of automation, and this idea around having more intelligence around your process started to kind of bubble up as what we did. And so ran it by analysts, have had way too many briefings, I spend way too many time with analysts building relationships, and now they're starting to call that category process intelligence. So that's what category creation is, is spending time with analysts and making it seem like it's their idea. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. It's an art and a science, right? It's definitely an art to try to get the inception level category creation, uh, making sure that people are going to to think that it's you. But it's interesting that you talked about like what people would search because they don't know that this is a category yet, right? So how do you think about that? Because they don't know what to search yet.
2: Yeah. Like I said, it's talking to the customers and finding out what their biggest pain point is and what they use this for. And it is as simple as understanding your process, documenting your process. Terms like that, that somebody would search for and having the relevant content there, right? So everything that goes along with SEO and how you build your website and what kind of blog posts you write, it's trying to match that content with what their particular pain point is. And right now, there's a lot of education that needs to happen around the different technologies, process mining, process discovery, task mining. And I think people are confused. And I think we have a very good opportunity to lead that conversation. And, you know, I will give a nod to John Miller at Marketo, who taught me everything I know about this, right, is marketing automation was a very scary proposition to a lot of marketers. And there was a lot of content that he needed to go create to explain what that actually meant. And that's kind of what we're doing here is finding those pain points and writing the content that matches it.
0: Yeah. I've interviewed John uh, a handful of times. Not on this show. Why don't we get, we got to get John on on this show.
2: You should. I know. Especially now he's at Demandbase. I know, right? Yeah.
0: Have to ping him after this. But we have had Chandar on here to talk about Marketo Marketing Nation, all that sort of stuff. The fact that people were buying into Marketo to be part of Marketing Nation. We also, um, we actually talked about that, you know, a few times also with Sarah Kennedy. That's like the community is like the embodiment of the category, right? It's like the fact that people wanted to be buy a product because they want to be part of it means that, that that solution is so burned into the DNA of who they are and who they're, what they need to solve for their business, the outcomes that they need to seek that you're really pushing into why they wake up every morning.
2: Yeah. Well, you think about it for marketers, right? When I went to college, I didn't have a class on attribution. I didn't have a class on nurturing and email best practices, right? Like a lot of this stuff that we learned as marketers, we learned on the fly and we learn from the technology providers, right? Because, you know, the definitive guide to lead management, right? Le- le- the definitive guide to lead scoring. Yeah. If those things didn't exist, we wouldn't know how to do it, right? And that start of that sort of created this education that people were craving because they didn't know how to tackle any of this stuff. So I feel it's kind of the same thing for Fortress IQ right now is there is a good way to go about figuring out your processes. Let's go write all the content that explains how to go do it so that we have the share of voice on being the community people want to be a part of.
0: Yeah, you know, it's funny, our amazing sponsors qualified. We were we were talking about their definitive guide for conversational marketing for Salesforce because they're built on Salesforce, and it's like one of those things where you know conversational marketing is something conversational sales and marketing is something people are, you know, CMOs are talking about. Obviously, we talk about on the show, but like that little tweak of like, but what is it actually like for Salesforce, which is where their product is, and just thinking about things like that of like it's not just about creating your category. Around this big fluffy thing in the sky, it's also like, what is your exact category niche, and like, how are you exactly serving that segment of the population? And it's just so critical.
2: Yeah, and own it, right? Like yeah. your, your your whole goal is to own that space, right? And and take up space, and and have tons of content on there, and be on the road when we can be on the road again, and and you know, be at all those trade shows, and be the the authority on this particular subject.
0: So let's dive deeper into Fortress IQ. Who are your personas? Who are you selling to? Who are the people that you want to uh, evangelize this new category?
2: Uh, so we sell to the global 2000 Fortune 500. You know, think of people with heavy processes that have been around for a long time, right? That are ingrained. We sell to centers of excellence, heads of automation, people that have Six Sigma backgrounds, right? Lean manufacturing that are now kind of creating this central process function within an organization to try and find efficiencies. We also sell to business analysts, right? So if you think about, if you remember the movie Office Space, right? The, the business, uh, you know, the analysts that come in and they ask everybody questions and they sit down and they look at everybody's processes. And, you know, so that's what we replace, right? Like we do that in a very short amount of time through computer vision and AI. And, and those are the people that we're trying to sell to, to say, you know, we'll make that really hard part, super easy for you to go get done. So you can go spend more time on the strategy and the outcomes and like what you actually go do with that data.
0: And so do these people have process intelligence? Is, is process intelligence going to be in their career titles at some point? You know, it's one of the things we talk about with category creation is like, you know, oftentimes you're actually creating a new role, like head of marketing automation was not a role before marketing automation came about, right? Things like that. I, I'm curious, are, are you thinking about it in that way?
2: Yeah. And that's one thing that the uh, my CEO and I talk about all the time. I mean, think about what Salesforce did for sales operations, right? Like that was not, it was one guy reporting into the CRO that was helping with comp plans and territory planning, right? And that now has become a lot more than that and in, in technology and analysis and, and everything that goes with the operations of a sales organization. And Salesforce is the platform to go do that on. You think about Splunk, right? The same way for CIOs and security and, and, and the operations in and around that. That's what we wanna go do, right? These people these that own their automation groups or centers of excellence, they need a platform to go find the data and analyze the data so they can go make their fact-based decisions on what they go do with it. And so that's how we are thinking of it, right? Like there will be heads of process intelligence. We think there's this renaissance of process within large enterprises because people have spent a lot of money on technology, a lot of money on transformation projects, 70% of them fail. And why? Because we haven't really taken a look at the process from the human perspective. Like, What are the humans actually doing with the process, not just what the technology is supposed to do with the process?
0: Yeah, it is this period of time where we just had this crazy year and processes are, are under more scrutiny than ever because we had to redo them. In a lot of cases we had to redo processes that were in person or now digital and 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 uh, and everything is changing. Does that change your go to market strategy when there's not necessarily like a hyper clear persona? Like it seems like there are, like you said, there's the heads of automation or centers of excellence or things like that. But when there's not a person whose title it is in every single company that you're going after, like how do the salespeople look at pursuing those personas and target accounts?
2: So one of the things that our salespeople do is they actually look for individuals that have six six sigma backgrounds, right? So most people on LinkedIn, if they're six sigma certified, they'll list it.
0: I love that, yeah.
2: Right, that's a good way to go find somebody, right? That that is very focused on process at very large organizations. So that's a way we tackle it. I've kind of segmented our our database into three big buckets, three big personas. One being around automation, right? The people that are actually doing automation projects today, customers of UiPath, Automation Anywhere, Microsoft, that have automation in their title. The second group being around people that have transformation in their title or process excellence is another term, operational excellence. Those are all the Six Sigma guys and gals you know, and then the third bucket is finance, right? <laughs> the reason I, I, I like to target finance is because they, A, they hold the purse strings, but they are probably one of the most process intensive organizations inside an enterprise, right? If you think about, um, you know, anything to do with AP, anything to do with billing, the different systems that they use, whether it be SAP, you know, how does that connect to a different process? You know, those folks are very manual, very redundant type of activities that they have the biggest pain point. And to your point around times have changed and I think people are going to spend more money trying to find inefficiencies in their back office yeah. Then try and optimizing externally the customer experience, right? It's time to kind of look inward and see if there's efficiencies that can be
0: gained. Let's get to our next segment, the playbook.
1: This is what's great about sports. This is what the greatest thing about sports is—you play to win the game. Hello, you play to win the game.
0: This is where you open up that playbook and talk about the tactics that help you win. And it doesn't just have to be tactics that you use in your current role, because I know the company's a little bit smaller right now, so you probably don't have the uh, the mega size marketing budget that you used to have at other companies. But I'm curious, what are your three uncuttable budget items?
2: The first one for me is content and creating good content. And that could be through an agency. It could be through uh, a contract writer or actually having people on staff. I mean, I think the ultimate goal is to actually have people on staff that know your tone, uh, you know, know the voice of the company and, and can write for you. And, you know, writing that content is super important. And that's just a I have to have that person. <laughs> like, There has to be budget for someone to help me because one person can't write all the content. You know, you have to have multiple people will do it. So that's the first one. Totally. I think analysts are the second uncuttable thing. And it's not just because of my experience here at Fortress IQ, but growing up in demand, gen, I never realized how important analysts were, right? Like I was on the receiving end of some gated asset that I had to go promote, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's all I knew about analysts. But what I, what I didn't, those wonderful gated 20 page, 20 page assets.
0: Oh, those gated assets. My goodness gracious.
2: And so what I've realized is that the relationship that you have with the analysts, especially introducing you to accounts, right? So their customers, you know, being on their radar, always being in front of them, being a, a customer of some sort you know with all these analysts i think that to me is uncuttable now you would have asked me that question 6 7 years ago i would have i would have not even brought up analysts i would have said paid advertising and i would have said webinars right but i do think analysts are are very important and i think the last one for me is the abm platform right now You know, having the ability to go do this at scale, because that's what field marketing couldn't do back in the day, right? Like you had seven field marketing managers assigned to territories that were doing all this stuff manually. And I think things like Terminus and Sixth Sense and Demand Base now give you this platform to do this orchestration and do it at scale so it can be as effective as your traditional inbound stuff. So, to me, that's something that, that I can't live without.
0: I love it. I want to dive into a few things there. So first, the analyst relations piece, does this matter for everyone? Does it matter for a certain size company, for the, for the marketers out there who don't have the B2B marketers that don't do analyst relations, that don't think about this? Like, is it necessary for everyone? I mean, obviously not everyone, but how should marketing leaders think about analyst relations?
2: I think it is for everyone. I think the types of analysts that you talk to or that you pay attention to differ for everybody, right? Depending on who you sell to, right? I We sell to enterprise. So for me, it is the Gartners, unfortunately, and the like, I have to pay that tax, right? We call it the, the tax you have to pay to, to be an enterprise software company. Those matter to me because those are the people that are going to have the audience with the people I care about.
0: Oh, interesting. So you think that part of that is about the audience that they have, not just about making sure that you are in the right quadrant or things like that. You think it's like also audience-based?
2: The analysts spend, you know, other than research, their biggest chunk of time that they spend is with customer inquiries, right? People calling, a CIO calling Gartner and saying, hey, we have a process discovery, process ma- mining, or automation project, who are the top 3 vendors we should talk to or you know this is th- there's a specific problem that they they need to go solve and you always want to be on that short list and it's not just when the magic quadrant comes out once a year right they have these conversations all year long And the more you can stay in front of them, like I have an analyst newsletter that goes out every single quarter. I treat them like customers, right? Here's who, you know, here are our new customers. Here's what we're doing. Here's the product roadmap stuff. And you start to treat it like you would treat a normal demand gen engine because they're the ones that are gonna do the referral. Like I just did a a briefing about a month ago and the analyst is like, oh, this is really good information. My next call is actually with an enterprise company who's looking to do this, I'll have to mention to them to look at you guys, right? So you can't pay for that. Like I use like that referral, that third party validation easily, right? And I think with analysts, you can. It's the same thing with G2 Crowd or any of you know the platforms that are out there now, right? Like that's an easy way to get analyst coverage because they technically are kind of analysts. So they're customer peer-to-peer analysts, but it's the same model, right? If you can get, you know, there and get your customers doing the references and and show up in their quadrants, that's how people find you, right? You always want to you always want to be in the top 3. Yeah, you're right. You don't always have to be number 1, but you have to be in the top 3.
0: Well, that's right. I mean, once you're in the top 3, then it's just a differentiation conversation, it's a positioning conversation and and then ultimately, you just hope you have that rockstar sales rep that can close the deal, right? Yeah
2: for sure.
0: Yeah, that's a fantastic insight. And I love the way that you thought about it. You know, back in the day, I I talked to Lauren Vaccarello about this, not on her episode that she did on the show, but because she had an ace analyst relations person at Box that they had, Jolie Erden, who's like fantastic. And we went super deep on that stuff. And like the way that she thought about AR was like, as sophisticated as any marketing person thinks about anything. And it was like truly a full-time responsibility, obviously, but to think about for that exact reason that you said. So Mm -hmm. I'm I'm glad you brought that up. You mentioned content. You just rolled out a couple of podcasts as a company that creates podcasts as a service. It's so near and dear to my heart, but you're not a huge company and you decided to go podcasts. And I'm so curious why.
2: It was easy for us to go do. And it was a way to create content outside of our own four walls of an organization, right? And get people's perspective. And when I was doing some research on podcasts, and there's not a lot of podcasts focus on like real world AI. And that's one of the things that we battle, right? I grew up in a generation where AI was scary, right? You think of, you know, Space Odyssey, you think of Terminator, you think of any Star Trek episode, right? Like, AI is going to come in and take over the world and take over our jobs and you know we will all be assimilated, blah, blah, blah. So it's still a scary proposition for a lot of people. And when you say AI, it just sounds very techie and very like, I don't need that, or I don't know what that is, not necessary kind of thing. And what I wanted to do is kind of create the space of showing people that are using AI for good, and that it's about human plus technology, not human or technology, and create this platform really for folks to talk about how they're using AI in their day to day. And it's been fascinating, the people that have been on the show that everything from we just recorded an episode with somebody at the GSA, right, government and and, government contracting, we had the head of diversity for AI from Google on the show we had the ceo of eightfold ai talking about using ai for hr and talent and recruiting you know it's just it's everywhere and i don't think we're talking about it enough right like what that actually means and and how it helps our jobs
0: i love exactly how you position that which is and i think about podcasts literally 24/7 so it's about creating a market that has a story that you don't think is being told the right way or the way that your company wants it told and creating a content machine around that one specific thing of the best people in the world to do that. And I think that it's like one of the things people get so wrong with content is just like, like you said earlier, it's like, I would love to have a whole team of writers that can write in our voice that are going to be on the team. But like, I'm never getting budget for that thing. So until we get to that point, you know, We have to have some type of extremely high quality content that actually breaks through. That's something that's interesting that people can subscribe to, that they can be a part of, that they know that there's a level of quality and expectation and depth of engagement that is going to be there. That's not just like somebody who you spend $10 to write an article for that's has really no expertise in the subject they're writing about.
2: No, I totally agree. And I'm a huge fan of repurposing content, right? Do one thing and create six or seven pieces of content, yep. right? It's like the Disney method, right? Like create one movie and then you've got, you know, everything, an entire franchise gets built.
0: It's creating IP. That's exactly right. It's, it's creating yeah. IP. That's, you're exactly right.
2: And so that's what I wanted to do just because we had a shortage of, of manpower to go do all this stuff. And, the easiest way is to, you know, you do one podcast, you get two blog posts out of it. You, you know, maybe get an infographic out of it. If it's, you know, compelling content, you can get customers to go do it. It's a light lift for customers to come on and be interviewed. That could turn into a webinar that turns into a case study, right? Like there's infinite amounts of content that can be created with one single piece of content. And I think that's what a lot of marketing teams get wrong is, you know, it's always start with a fresh piece of paper. I got to go create content. And it's like, you know what? We have this already. (laughs) Like we've written this, you know, like a sales perfect example, a salesperson will ask, I need a two pager on block. And I'm like, well, we don't have that in particular, but we have these two pieces of content that I could probably go turn into a two pager, or I have this white paper that I could take the infographic out of it and and that we could use it for that. It's not always about creating something from scratch.
0: It's a great piece of advice. And I feel the exact same way. And I also feel like you banging your head against the wall and trying to figure it out versus being able to correctly categorize those things allows people to consume that stuff in the utility that they want. And one of the things that we think of, like we did it for this show, for example, with our uncuttable budget items. And like, we're going to drop the uncuttable budget items as standalone episodes, like every, every 20 or so episodes on the show. And we do this for, for all of our shows, but it's just a way of thinking about like, Sometimes people just want that one thing and they want to go super deep on that one thing. Other times they want to know, you know, other types of things. I think just so much of what is done right now is like you've already written 400 blog posts over the past 5 years. There's enough there, you know. Recycle. <laughs> yeah, and refresh and make it interesting, but but just don't race to the bottom with with garbage.
2: Yep, totally agree.
0: Do you have any favorite campaigns or maybe best learning experiences from your least favorite campaigns that you've had over the years?
2: I was thinking about this before I came on here. And my favorite campaign that we've ever done was at Domo. So I ran account-based marketing at Domo six years ago, right? So early days, that's when I first implemented Terminus and a bunch of other technologies, EverString, back when EverString was still alive. And we had this idea of bringing food trucks to customers. And so we sat down with the sales team. The hardest part of this exercise was not the actual execution of getting a food truck somewhere. It was picking the accounts and sitting down with the sales reps and saying, okay, here's your territory. Here's what we think are the best targets. What do you think? Like the back and forth on it was just insane. And so we we finally get the list done and literally it would be in exchange for a meeting with the CFO and usually the CMO we'll bring a food truck to your location and we'll pay for lunch for your finance and your marketing departments. And there's a bunch of emails and everything else that went with it and some direct mail beforehand. But the response that we got from that, like being able to see the engagement of people actually interacting with the emails or the website and then saying, you know, Hey, we're going to, you know, about us now we want to pay for lunch and all we want is a meeting. Everyone was just super interested by it, thought it was a different approach. And we got, you know, like 20, 25 meetings out of the thing and it was low cost, right? It was probably a thousand bucks, 1500 bucks for us to send a food truck. So maybe we'll do that again, post pandemic. I don't know, but it's definitely one of my favorite campaigns.
0: I've never heard anyone do that. I mean, I've heard like things similar ish to that, but like catering or things like that, but the food truck is cupcakes. Yeah. Cupcakes. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Always cupcakes.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But, but the food truck thing is really cool because it gets everybody out of their cubicle and you kind of have to have a conversation about it when you're standing in line for the food truck.
2: You're like, who brought, th- like, who's paying for lunch today? So it's kind of bringing that field marketing experience to them versus going into a suite or, you know, doing a ball game or, or something like that. So I want to do that again because it definitely um, it definitely made people more aware of, of who we are and what we were doing.
0: Uncuttable number four, food truck marketing. I'm, I'm yeah. in. <laughs>
2: It's a whole new channel.
0: <laughs> any, yeah, right. Food truck as a service. Do you have any uh, any learning experiences from from something that didn't go well?
2: Yeah. So when I was the CMO at Host Analytics, so we sold FP&A software. It's now called Planful. So we were basically competing against spreadsheets. We were a fancier, more effective way to do your planning, your modeling, your budgeting. And we came up with this idea to write a breakup letter to spreadsheets, right? And we called it Dear Spreadsheets. And you know, we had fun with it. It was kind of like a Dear John letter. <laughs> you know, We love you. We still want to be friends. We think you're great. You've been around for 40 years with no fundamental change in UI. But we think there's a better way. And it was great. It was great branding. Had a lot of fun with it. Great advertising. And there was a roadshow component to it. And so we picked, I think, six cities that we would go do this roadshow about you know, why it's time to break up with spreadsheets. In theory, this all sounded very good, and the testing we had done digitally was really good, but where it failed was the roadshow. And I think it's because we didn't have 100% buy-in from the sales team. And because people don't want to break up with spreadsheets, <laughs> right? They love, you know, finance people love spreadsheets.
0: I don't want to quit you.
2: Yeah, I don't want to quit you. You can pry me out of my cold, dead hand. I think was one of the one of the quotes in uh, in Forbes at some point about talking about, you know, will Excel ever go away? And it just it it fell flat, and it, it wasn't anybody's fault. And it was something we tried, but what we did learn is. The alignment with sales needed to be a a lot tighter in order for that to actually be successful and, you know, don't underestimate Excel.
0: (laughs) So, you know, it's funny. I was just thinking about that and I'm like, I wonder how that campaign goes if it's like Excel's new best friend, right? Yeah. Where it's like, instead of like pitting the enemy as Excel, which is the thing that like turns out they're really, you know, still obsessed with. Yep. It's you and Excel can, can go on a date together to, to Disneyland.
2: Yeah. Live happily ever after.
0: That's so funny.
2: Yeah. No, maybe, maybe, but, um, yeah, that was one that, 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 uh, we had high hopes for.
0: How do you view your website?
2: The website's the front door, right? To any company, right? Like you think about someone's first interaction with you as a potential vendor, It's the website, right? It's the front door. Uh, I always use this analogy about shoe stores. So I spend all my money on shoes and live music, right? So I go past a shoe store and I don't see a shoe that I like. I'm not going to go in. (laughs) I go into a shoe. I see a shoe store and it has like a pair of shoes that's my style. It's in my color. It's in my size. There's a sale uh, on it. I'm going to go in. Uh, I don't care about anything else. Just you know, just give me that shoe. And if I don't buy that shoe, if I've done my job well, someone's going to follow me around reminding me that that shoe is in my basket mm-hmm. and that I am going to miss out if I don't buy that shoe. And, you know, everyone else is buying that shoe and I'm the only one that's not going to have it, right? So that's the the journey, right? The website and the retargeting and, and you know, staying in front of somebody, even off property, I think is really important. And it's, you've got five seconds to wow somebody and make sure that they've got something that, or we've got something that they want for them to even click anywhere on the website. So that's how I view it. Let's
0: get to our next segment, the dust up. Here comes trouble. You may have heard that there was a dust up involving yours truly. And
1: now we've got a wild scrum with fights breaking out all over the place. And it is getting really ugly as we've got punches and kicks
0: where we talk about healthy tension, that's with your board, your sales team, your competitors, or anyone else. Have you had a memorable dust-up in your career?
2: I have. I've had a couple, but this one in particular. So I just started, I was about six months in at Host Analytics as the CMO, and we were in a planning meeting. And this was a dust-up not caused by me (laughs) or the other person that I ended up having the dust-up with. This was caused by the CEO. And who just in the middle of the meeting said, I think the SDRs need to report into marketing.
0: Oh, geez.
2: You know, the head of sales was very adamant, very animated that this was a sales function and that this was a career path for all these young kids out of college. And, yeah. you know, why would it sit under marketing? And um, my, re- you know, my response was, well, it's not working today. I can go fix it from a process perspective. The CEO's response was, head of sales, you're in charge of closing opportunities. Christelle's in charge of creating opportunities. SDRs are in the opportunity creation business, not in the closing business. I want to make it a very easy conversation to have, you know, who's responsible for what. And that's what I want to go do. So you two go figure it out. Which then led to a bunch of very uncomfortable meetings between me and the head of sales because, He thought it was a coup that I was trying to take, you know, take away the SDRs from him was a land grab, you know, and I I had no idea this was coming, (laughs) but we've got to go figure it out. Like, we have to make a decision about what's best for the company as officers of the company. And it was with data that I think I finally won him over just around what was happening today, what the opportunity was if we had a different system in place we were comping them differently and in the end it was crea- it was about creating more opportunities for his team and i think also making sure he understood that he didn't have to do any of the dirty work i was going to have to do the dirty work i was going to have to do the numbers crunching and the reporting and all that other stuff and all he had to do was close business at the end of the day he was like okay fine but i want them back and i said okay i'll fix them give them to me for like six months. I'll fix them. And then you can have them back. Fast forward three months, board meeting, I had to go and present. SDRs were killing it. Best quarter they'd ever had. Best pipeline generation quarter we'd ever had. And we get out of the board meeting and the head of sales comes to me and goes, you can keep them. (laughs)
0: Oh, that's awesome.
2: So, you know, it's just, it's about numbers and communication and data. And, you know, we got through it, but whenever there's a bomb thrown into a meeting like that and neither party is ready, emotions tend to run high, but it's, uh, it worked out in the end.
0: It's really funny because I totally see both sides and I've been on both sides and I get it. But at the end of the day, like, I just go back to the fact nobody really wants to talk to an SDR anymore. If you're a salesperson, you should want your customers to want to talk to the people that are the best people at talking with customers. You don't want them talking to a 22-year-old. No matter how... If that person's career path is to be a great AE, it's not helping your customers close deals to have someone who doesn't really know what they're talking about talking to your your customers. It really doesn't.
2: Yeah, no, I I agree with that statement. And so what we ended up doing is... SDRs were for inbound. SDRs are the people that are following up with the people that have showed interest. Yep. Period. They should not be doing outbound. They should not be learning the pitch. They should not be trying to demo.
0: I love that.
2: They should not be answering complicated questions about, you know, tech. Get the people that have spent time as inbound that want to go be a sales rep, that have that muscle. And, you know, then teach them how to go be a junior sales rep and and test the waters with outbound and get them out of the inbound game and see if they can do it. I think we have a generation of salespeople that were former SDRs in the inbound craze, right, where pipeline was 80% generated by marketing that don't know how to prospect.
0: I mean, you figure like predictable revenue was written in like 2006 or something like that. I mean, like 15 years ago the idea that 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 structure still makes sense is crazy. Mm -hmm. Like, it's okay that it evolves. It should evolve. Because at the end of the day, all of the executives, we all know the game. And the last thing we want to do is to talk to a 22-year-old. And that's like, it's okay to say that. Our time is way too valuable. It's not an indictment of the SDRs not having the quality or whatever. It's just, there's no way for that person or like it's not an age thing, although I said 22, 15 times, but it's the fact of the matter is like someone who's been a CMO for and been in marketing for 20 years is never going to want to talk to someone who has no idea what they're talking about. Like it's just, so why fight it? (laughs) For what?
2: It's too ripe for mistakes, right? I mean, I think for me, I mean, I don't have that complicated of a name to spell, but you know, don't call me Christine, don't call my cell phone seven times. Don't leave me, you know, like, yeah, don't send me canned emails. Like one look at my background and you should know, (laughs) I probably know what I'm doing from a demand gen perspective. It takes somebody pretty creative and interesting to get through to me. And when they do, then it's great. And I'd love to have the conversation. But I think the other point to that is 80% of the people have probably already done their homework.
0: Yeah, exactly. It's exactly right.
2: Right. And if they want to talk to you, they're going to reach out, which is why, you know, conversational marketing and chat is so hot right now is because it is such a low barrier to entry for me to have a conversation with somebody just to set up a demo. Like, I just want to see your product, period, end of story. Don't pitch me. Don't ask me what my problems are. I know what my problems are.
0: That's exactly right. And to your point earlier, it's like, and then the answers to those questions are happening as they're talking to analysts, as they're looking at G2, as they're looking like they already know the gaps. Yep. You have to give them the answers. They're not looking for more questions.
2: Yeah, exactly. And they're looking for the differentiation, right? Because if you've done your homework for conversational marketing, I've done my homework. I just need to know why you're different. Is it cost? Is it, are you mobile first? Is it like, what is it that makes you different so that I know what's going to fit my request?
0: So what did you do <laughs> um, with to get the the SDRs rolling in their best quarter ever?
2: Process you know, these are young kids, right? They're right out of college. They want to be managed weirdly. I had a VP of sales early on in my career. And he said to me, people don't know it usually, but they tend to want to be managed and want to know what they need to do to be successful. And if you don't have that conversation early on, it's really hard to, you know, get them to do anything, right? Like whether it be around compensation or, you know, number of SQLs they need to hit or number of meetings, like what exactly am I getting paid to go do? And the only way you can go do that is if all the plumbing is done and you can measure it effectively and you have the dashboards and there's proper handoffs and everybody knows the definition. So there was a lot of that groundwork that had to go be done between the SDRs and sales and and marketing of like, you know, you need to pick up your mql and you have 4 hours to disposition it and you know from there like this is where you go to see your list of prioritization you know priority accounts that you have to call and this is the eight touch process and this is how you put them into a cadence and you know this is how you disqualify I'm like none of that had been done and so once we did that and said okay i'm paying you to get at bats that convert into opportunities period end of story So optimize your day to go do that. And you know, if they're if they're smart (laughs) and they want to make money, pretty easy for them to to comply.
0: Final question, final segment. Let's get into our quick hits. These are quick questions and quick answers. Just like conversational marketing with qualified.com. Qualified prospects are on your website right now, and you can talk to them quickly with qualified. Qualified's the best. We love them. Check them out. Go to qualified.com to learn more. Christelle, are you ready? I'm ready. Number one, if you weren't in marketing, what do you think you'd be doing?
2: I would be a biomedical engineer, I think. I actually started my college career. I wanted to be a biomedical engineer. I wanted to make prosthetics for little kids. So I actually have two years of, of engineering under my belt. I think that's what I would be doing.
0: We already knew you were smarter than us, but now it's officially official. Is it true that your great, 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 great grandfather was Napoleon's right-hand general? It is. That's crazy.
2: I know. My last name is actually on the Arc de Triomphe, which is is fun. So I was born in Belgium, and my entire family is still there, except for my parents who who live out here in California. But if you look up Napoleon Bonaparte, you will see my last name in there. It's the old spelling. It's with H-A-U-T and then sometime i think before world war 1 they changed it to x but yeah pretty fun
0: do you have a favorite book or podcast or tv show that you've been binging recently
2: so i have a 17 year old daughter and uh you know we've both been stuck at home getting on each other's nerves but every night we watch <laughs> uh an episode of criminal minds which i never watched when it was out but you know there's like 12 seasons and it's fun to to watch together so i think we're in season eight or nine. So we've got three, four, three or four more seasons to go, but that's what we've been. We've been binge watching.
0: What do you do for fun other than buy shoes and go to live concerts?
2: (laughs) I can't do live concerts anymore. So, which sucks. Hopefully in the fall, they'll come back. So, for fun during the pandemic, I've been baking a lot. So like I said, you know, born in Belgium and my grandmother had some, some pretty great uh, recipes. And so my mom saved them all. And so I have them. So they're all in French, which is hard because I have to convert them into, you know, from metric into, into us, but that's been fun and challenging. And and cooking some fun things from Belgium. The other thing that I've been doing that's been keeping me busy is I actually mentor for Santa Clara University for the Miller Center.
0: Oh, Co Broncos.
2: Yeah, so I've been uh, I've been mentoring this group of uh, religious sisters in Zambia who are building a farm sustainable farming for their village and you know trying to teach kids how to farm and and you know learn how to raise pigs and chickens and sell them and and make money and, and try and, and elevate these folks out of poverty so it's fun starting my day helping them with their pitch tech and talking about a piggery <laughs> and then going into uh, you know my actual work day and talking about bots and Computer vision, so it's been fun to to see them kind of grow and and get funding and and all that fun stuff.
0: That is really awesome. What a cool, what a cool thing. Last question: If you had one piece of advice that you could give to a first time CMO trying to figure out that demand gen strategy, what would it be?
2: Just listen. You do what you can to listen to the salespeople, to your customers before you do anything. Make sure. You understand your current state, like what is actually happening. Where do you need to focus? And the only way you can go do that is is to be a listener, right? I I say my first thirty days are usually resident therapist for a lot of people because you know they always want to tell the new person what's wrong and how they would fix it. So it's your job to understand the lowest common denominator and, and work your way through that list. So that's my advice. Just listen.
0: Well, thanks so much for joining everybody. Go check out Fortress IQ. If you want to learn more and check out the, the women in AI series, hello human that they're doing, uh, which is on the website, which is pretty rad. And I'm going to go give it a listen, uh, here this afternoon. So Christelle, any, any final thoughts, anything to plug?
2: Yeah. Just come check us out. Definitely listen to the podcast. We have a whole series for women in AI, some fascinating stories, both on the AI front and uh, just how to be a woman in a room full of men, right? In a field that is dominated by men. So take a listen and uh, let us know what you think.
1: Awesome. Thanks so much. Thanks a lot. The Gen Visionaries is brought to you by our friends at qualified.com a conversational marketing company that's on a mission to transform the way B2B companies sell. Go to qualified.com to learn more.